All right, welcome to week two of Never Defeated. We're continuing a study in the book of Nehemiah. And we're talking about those times in life when we feel defeated. And we're learning in this study that no matter how defeated we feel, we don't have to be defeated. And we're learning specific ways that we can follow God in times that would otherwise defeat us. Well, as I was thinking about this this last week, it reminded me of a video I saw with my kids of a person who feels so defeated and you're allowed to laugh at it. This is a, a young guy who got his wisdom teeth taken out. And after he has his wisdom teeth out, the anesthesia is still kind of in his system and he feels a little bit defeated. Feel free to laugh along, even though you might relate a little bit. Go ahead and take a look. I don't know what that is. It's easy. You always say she looks like an old woman. That's a raccoon. It's not a raccoon. Yes, it is. Uh, I, just, I need to go take a walk. Well, you can't take you a can't walk. You can't take a walk. You need Nobody to. Nobody can get you back inside. What is this? It's where they. Is that my tooth? <laughs> Why did. Yeah, they taped it to your arm. What is life? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm beginning to wonder. <laughs> we need to go take a walk. No, you need to sit walk. down. Sit down on the sofa. <laughs> what are you Yeah, I love that moment when he's so confused and he's just like, what is life? Because I think if we're honest, even though we have to put on our grown-up face and act like we have it together, there's a lot of times in life that we feel like that inside, don't we? We just feel like, what is going on? And I want to talk with you today about how we can turn to God in those times. And if you've been with us in this study of Nehemiah, in the first four parts, we called it never too late. It's never too late to turn to God in your crisis. And what you're gonna find in your life is that as you turn to God, as you believe in the power of Jesus in your life, he will get you through the crisis that you're in. In fact, in this world that's broken by sin, the reality is we're always either in a crisis or we're on our way into the next one. But what you're going to find is the more you trust in Jesus, the more you turn to him, he'll always get you through the crisis. And then comes the real test of your character and your faith. And that is, will you keep turning to God when life starts to get better? I know when my own life, when I think back to some of my lowest lows, and I remember how desperately I called out to God when I had no other hope and no other help. I know when I think back to that, then when there's seasons of life where things are a little more comfortable, I realize that I have a tendency to drift, and I don't call out to God as desperately as I did when I was at my low. Uh, for example, some of you know I used to have these really severe headaches, and I would get all the symptoms of a stroke when I would have these headaches, and there was a season of my life where I was hospitalized because of these headaches. I would lose my ability to speak, half my body would go numb, and I literally felt like I was dying. It was the lowest I've ever been physically, and I remember in that crisis how I called out to God, and it was just like, you know, God, you're the only thing I have. 
The doctors couldn't figure out exactly why it was happening or how to stop it. And I remember just the desperation and the urgency with which I called out to God. Well, now, by God's grace, since we've moved here for about two years, I haven't had a single one of those headaches by God's grace. And so for those of you who pray for me, yeah, praise God. And here's the thing, if I'm honest with myself, now that I have much better health than I used to have, there are days that I realize, if I'm really honest, you know what? I'm not calling out to God with the same kind of urgency that I had when I was in my crisis. And that's the principle we're going to learn today, that as you follow God, he will get you through the crisis, and then comes the real test. You actually see this in other areas of life too, right? You, you see the person, or maybe you've been the person who goes on the diet, and they, they make some gains, and then they get a little bit complacent, and they lose those gains. Or you see the marriage where they, I mean, it's at rock bottom. It seems like they're going to get a divorce. They both get really intentional. They do counseling, and they're both like, you know, every day I'm going to do something special for my spouse, and they, the marriage really starts to improve. But then one of them gets complacent, and the other one gets complacent, and it drifts back down. We're talking today about the drift of complacency in our spiritual lives, in our relationships, uh, in our finances. We've seen in this church, if you go through our Financial Peace University, you'll see that if you do your finances God's way, if every month you actually spend less than you make and you save some and you prioritize God in your finances, you'll start to get to a place of financial freedom. Then comes the test. Now that you're not in debt and you're financially free, do you keep doing it God's way or do you get complacent and drift back down? We're going to see in God's word today that our tendency is towards complacency. And complacency kills marriages. Complacency kills careers. Complacency can kill your physical health. Complacency can kill your spiritual relationship with God. So here's the question we're asking. How can we avoid the trap of comfort? Nothing wrong with comfort, but comfort often leads us to be complacent. How can we avoid the trap of comfort leading us back down into complacency? How can we make sure we don't fall into that trap in our lives? Well, let's pick up in our study of Nehemiah here in chapter 7, and we're going to find the answer to that question. And here we are, it says, after the wall had been rebuilt, and I had set the doors in place. Now, if you're new with us, what we've been learning in the book of Nehemiah is that there was an entire city the ancient city of Jerusalem, and it had been torn down. The walls had been physically torn down. The whole city had been ransacked. And this was a city where God's people lived. But God's people, they'd been sold as slaves. They'd been scattered all around the ancient world. And God puts it on the heart of this guy, Nehemiah, to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city. And God's people are now at this place where they've overcome obstacle after obstacle, all sorts of challenges and divisions and problems, and they finally rebuilt the infrastructure of their city. It's a huge monumental moment. It's like a moment where you've had a lot of pain in your life and you've been doing it God's way, and now you're kind of up out of that pain. Doesn't mean life's perfect, but now there's some comfort. And what's gonna happen in this moment is that the spiritual leaders are gonna pause, and they're gonna say, now that we're headed into a season of prosperity, in a season of comfort, let's pause and make sure that we don't become complacent. And so here's what they're going to do. In verse uh, chapter 8, verse 1, they gather all the people together as one, just like we're gathered here. And then they're going to open up the word of God. 
and say, hey, before we start to live in this beautiful brand new city, let's see what the word of God has to say. In fact, if you want to imagine like we see here in Indiana, when you see a cornfield and the big construction equipment comes in, and about a year later, that cornfield is a whole bunch of brand new houses, I want you to imagine that and then imagine that in the cornfield next to it is a brand new shopping center, but no one has moved in yet. All the houses are empty, all the stores are empty, none of the signs are up yet. This is where the people of Jerusalem are, brand new city that they've rebuilt. And the spiritual leaders say, before we all move in and before we all start to enjoy a comfortable life, let's pause and look at the word of God. And in fact, in verse 18, we're told this, day after day, Ezra, who was their prophet, read from the book, from the law of God, which is the Bible. And here's the summary of what they read. Chapter 9 gives us a summary. And I'd encourage you this week to read Nehemiah chapter 9. In fact, you could read it every day this week and you could get something new out of it every day. There's three themes in the book. First is who God is. You'll see all these action verbs in Nehemiah chapter 9 that God is faithful, that God provides, that God restores, that God delivers, that God protects, that God forgives. All these great things God does, but then we see this theme that God's people, even though he was faithful, they were unfaithful. In fact, they look back and they realize this is why our city got torn down in the first place. Because we were in a place of prosperity and we got spiritually complacent and we stepped out from under God's blessing and that's why everything fell apart. You can think of God's blessing in your life or God's protection like an umbrella. If you imagine yourself outside in a heavy rainstorm and you've got an umbrella over your head, God's laws, his ways, his directions for your life are like that umbrella that's over you. So when God says do this thing or don't do that thing, he's not trying to spoil your life and make your life boring. He's trying to keep you under the umbrella of his blessing. And what our tendency is and what happened to the people of Israel is that they'd be under God's blessing and life would get better and better. And then they'd get a little bit spiritually lazy. They'd get complacent and they'd step out from under that blessing and then life would start to fall apart again. And life falls apart enough and we get beaten down and then we return to God again. And we step back under his blessing and it starts to get better. And then we get complacent and we step back out and it gets worse. And it becomes this cycle in the history of Israel and a pattern often in our own lives. So Nehemiah 9 summarizes so well. God's always faithful. Sometimes we're not faithful. But God is always eager to forgive and to restore anytime we've stepped out from under his blessing, stepped out of his ways for our life. He's eager to restore us. He's eager to forgive us. And so here's the difference between success that rolls back down into failure and success that leads to the next success and the next. Right? We've all experienced success to some degree. You wanted to get married, then you got married. Now what? You wanted to get the job, now you got it. Now what? You wanted the promotion or you wanted the house. There was something you wanted, you got it, now what? And there's, there's really two ways of living. There's people who have success and then they roll back down into failure, spiritually and in other ways. And then there's people who have success and then they build on it and they build on it. And God wants for you by his definition of success, a life of freedom where one success leads to another leads to another. What's the difference? Well, here's the difference. 
Very simply, it's choosing to depend on God after the crisis is over. Nehemiah chapters 7 through 10, you can really summarize all of it right there. Success spiritually comes when you choose to depend on God after the crisis is over. And we see this demonstrated in the physical realm as well, right? If someone goes on a diet and they, they do well, success comes as they keep in those patterns. They keep eating that way or exercising that way. And the same is true spiritually. When God blesses in our lives and where something was painful, now it's comfortable, we choose to keep depending on him just as much. And if we don't, we fall into the common trap of complacency, the killer of complacency. So really our text today is kind of a warning. For some of us, it'll be a little bit of a wake-up call. It's one of those passages where my job is to communicate God's word to you. I don't get to change it to make you feel good. And for some of you today, the word of God is going to be, whoa, I've become complacent in some area of my life. The Holy Spirit will reveal what it is to you if you've become complacent somewhere. But I want to give you three steps that will protect you from the killer of complacency in your life. And step one is that we repent that is, we turn away from any ways or patterns in our lives that are different than God's. That's a really long way of saying what the Bible calls sin. Things that the Bible says, don't live a life of lust, don't live a life of greed, don't live a life of drunkenness, don't live a life of rage and anger. Why does God call those things sin? Because those things step us out from under the umbrella of God's protection. And we repent really at two different levels in our life. The first repentance is that time, and for some of you, maybe today's the first time where you come to God and you say, you know what, life my way isn't working. And I'm gonna turn away from living life my way and doing it my way, and I'm gonna believe in what Jesus did on the cross. Scripture says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Salvation isn't something that you earn. You can't buy your way to heaven. You can't do enough good deeds to get to heaven. But you turn from yourself. And you say, Jesus, I believe you're God. You died on the cross for me. I receive the free gift of salvation. That's the first repentance. And by the way, if you haven't done that, you can do it today. And when that happens, Scripture says you get set free from sin. You get adopted into the family of God. You receive the gift of eternal life and you now have a new life ahead of you. But if you're anything like me, as you follow God, you still make mistakes. In fact, maybe it will be encouraging for you to hear that uh, your pastor, pretty much every week, I make some kind of mistake, some kind of sin in my life. In fact, the closer you grow to God, it's like shining a really bright light and you start to see imperfections in your soul that you wouldn't have seen before things in your thoughts, things in your emotions. And here's the beauty as a follower of Christ. You can continually say, God, I want to live life your way. The book of 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 say this, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're never going to live a perfect life in this world, but what we are after is a consistent life. A life that consistently says, God, whenever I have stepped out from under your umbrella, whenever I've gone away other than yours, I'm going to be quick to return to you and say, God, I want to live life your way. 
Well, here's the principle that we see in step one. Crises humble us. We are the most likely to turn to God when we're broken or helpless or desperate. And if that's where you are right now, you can turn to God right now. Others of us, we look back on our life. And like I was saying about my headaches, you realize, wow, there was a time I was so broken and I only had God. God's people applied this in Nehemiah 9, verse 3. It says, they stood in their places and they confessed their sins. And so part of, as they're moving into this brand new city, before they get complacent, to prevent them getting complacent, they stop and say, God, are we actually living life your way? And so the principle here is us taking the time to do the same in our lives. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10 says this, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. And so when there's sorrow in your life, it's actually an opportunity to connect with God. And when you connect with God in your sorrow and you turn from your way of life, it leads you first to salvation and then it leads you to a life of freedom. And you look back in life and, and you think, even though I had to go through that hard time, I'm glad I did because it drew me closer to God. Well, I don't know if you've ever seen a U.S. Coast Guard ship. Uh, you know, if you see a U.S. Coast Guard ship and you're just at the beach or on vacation, it's just kind of, well, there's a neat boat in the water. It, it's there. But it's entirely different if you're out on the water. Let's say you're on some tour-guided ship and a storm comes up and the ship capsizes and you're floating in the water, you're clinging onto a piece of debris, there's a massive storm, you think you're going to die, then you see a Coast Guard ship, and it's a completely different thing, right? It's here to rescue me, it's here to save me. And the same is true of the power of Jesus in your life, the power of the cross, and the presence of God's work, the church, in a community. When everything's going great in life, it can be kind of like, yeah, there's the Coast Guard ship, neat. You know, you can drive by the church building like, oh good, I'm, I'm glad those people are there. But it's when we're drowning in life, it's when we're sinking in our own sins, it's when there's a storm in our life that we realize the saving power of Jesus and how desperate we are for him. Mel and I, we were once at dinner with some friends and, and we were kind of discussing how do we raise our kids? You know, practical things like one, how do we get them to not bite each other? And then as they get older, how do we get them to not like have fits of rage where they yell at each other? I mean, how do we get our kids to grow up and make good choices and have good friends? And, and as we were talking about that and thinking, what does God's word say about this? We kind of realized this reality that, yes, all people are made in the image of God. So every human is dignified and valuable and eternally significant. And we need to encourage our kids with that reality. They have a noble a nobleness to them that God has wired into them. But there's also another side of it. Scripture says that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, every human being, no matter how good, has what God calls a sin nature. We all have a brokenness to us. We all have a propensity to take what's not ours at times. We all have a propensity towards hatred or jealousy, or rage at times. And if we don't teach our kids about their sin nature, then all this talk about Jesus and the cross and his power is just like seeing a pretty Coast Guard ship. 
if they don't realize, you know what, there are things inside me that I can't fix. There are times when my desire and what the bent of my heart is is so broken, I need a rescue from outside to change me. The cross makes sense when we understand the bad news. Now we can understand the good news. You know, I was reading a bizarre story this last week about a guy in Germany in 2004. His name's Mark Vogel. And Mark Vogel had all these exotic pets, you know, poisonous frogs and poisonous spiders, and he kept these things as pets. And Mark Vogel lived in an apartment, and after a while, his neighbors, they were smelling this weird stench from his apartment. So the authorities went in, and Mark Vogel, they think it was a black widow spider, one of his pets that he was keeping poisoned him, and he ended up dying in his own home. As I was reading that bizarre story, I was thinking, you know, that's so much like sin in our lives. We, we kind of keep it in a little cage and we think it's, it's okay over there. And what God tells us is out of love for us, he says, don't keep those things in your life because they could kill you. They could harm you. You know, God has something better for us and that's why he says, repent from the old ways and choose my ways. Well, step two is that we reorganize our ongoing lifestyle habits. You know, every year in a church this size, we'll see some people who take step one. They're at their very lowest low that, you know, they were in a total crisis and they turn to God and they have a dramatic moment. And Jesus told a parable where he said, some of these people follow through and grow spiritually. And some of them, once the crisis is over, they just go back to living the same way. What's the difference between those two? The difference is step two. You actually reorganize your life. You actually say, you know what? My thoughts, my time, my habits, I'm gonna actually organize my life around God's patterns. We see this in Nehemiah chapter 10. Look at what God's people say. They say, we are making a binding agreement. As they look back and they see, wow, our ancestors had been blessed by God. And they got spiritually complacent and spiritually lazy and they stepped out from under God's blessing and then everything fell apart. Now here we are, we've sought God, he's giving us a new city and we're gonna be blessed. We wanna make sure we don't drift. We wanna make sure we don't become spiritually complacent. And so they say, God, we're making a binding agreement. What your word says to do in our lives, that's what we'll do. And here's what I wanna ask you. Have you ever made a binding agreement between you and God? Have you ever had a moment where you said, you know what, my life belongs to God, not to me, and I will follow his plan in my life? So I've pre-decided what the word of God says to do with my sexuality, that's what I'm gonna do. What the word of God says to do with my finances, that's what I'm gonna do. What the word of God says to do with my marriage, my relationships, my career, my desires, I'm always gonna do what the word of God says. Have you made a binding agreement. When Mel and I lived in Arizona, we were up in northern Arizona, it was super dry, but every once in a while we'd get these massive monsoon rains. Like when it would rain, it would pour. And we had this old house with a flat roof and the very back of the house, when there'd be a monsoon, it would be like a waterfall off the back of the house. And we had in our yard this little elm tree that was kind of struggling because of how dry the soil is there and how dry the climate is. 
And one day I was out in the yard doing some work and I thought about how all this water comes off the back of the house. And so I got a shovel and I just made these little canals, these little ditches in the ground that started shallow where all that water would pool. And it went deeper and deeper all the way to the roots of that elm tree. And guess what happened after a couple seasons? After a number of storms and a couple years, that little elm tree grew and grew and grew and just turned into this really strong, vibrant tree. A tree where the leaves were kind of dead and scraggly turned into a tree where the leaves were green, the roots were growing deep, the branches were strong. And Jesus actually talks about this in a parable. He says that when a person places their faith in Christ, they are like a seed in the ground. And that seed is that moment of salvation when you acknowledge, I can't save myself. Jesus be my savior. That seed is planted. And the moment that seed is planted, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, the old is gone, the new has come. But now you've got a choice to make every day. Are you going to live the new life or are you going to drift back and choose the old life? The old life, by the way, isn't who you are anymore. Uh, the life of those enslaving choices and habits and negative decisions, that's not who you are anymore. As a follower of Christ, you can look in the mirror and you can say, I've been set free. I am destined for a new life and a free life, but you do have to choose that. And so here's the question, you know, how do you kind of dig those little ditches, those channels so that the water of God gets into the roots of your heart so that you grow strong. How do you dig those? And I want to give you three ways here from Nehemiah. In chapter 10, we see three of these channels that bear fruit. And this could be a whole sermon or whole sermon series. If you want to study it deeper, it's in chapter 10. But God's essentially going to say that your thoughts and your time and your treasure are all channels to your heart. By the way, pretty much anyone who understands people would agree with this, even if you don't believe in God, even if you're not a Christian. The reality about any person is this. Show me what consumes their thoughts, show me what they do with their time, and show me what they do with their money, and I can tell you what they value and who they're going to become. It's true of us all. God knows this about us, and so he says, align your beliefs to God's word. Who's shaping your beliefs? You know, I used to work in the news media, nothing wrong with the news media, but is the news media shaping your beliefs or is the word of God? Is social media shaping your beliefs or is the word of God? Do you believe what's right or wrong or good or bad based on what a celebrity said or based on what a professor said or based on the word of God? If you want to have these lasting results, if you want to see God really change your life, if you want your roots to go deep and your leaves to be green, you align your beliefs with the word of God. Secondly, the people say, hey, we understand the complacency trap. We see how our ancestors fell away. So we're going to prioritize God, not only in our thoughts, but also in our schedules. We're going to make it a point to be in the house of God. And so step one of this, you're doing right now because you're here. Way to go. And that's saying, hey, there's 52 weeks in a year. Unless I'm sick or I'm on vacation or out of town, I'm going to be in the house of God in my local church. Why? Because where I put my time is a channel into my heart. And I'm gonna make sure that every week, no matter what's going on in my life, if I'm in a good season of blessing or a difficult season of testing, I'm gonna be in the house of God, connecting my heart to the word of God. And then the third one here is that the people say, okay, as we enter a season of prosperity, 
every time we have a harvest in our fields, we're going to bring back the first fruits, the best, the first part of the harvest, and we're going to give it back to God. And we're going to do so in a way that says, God, everything we have is from you. Our prosperity is from you, and we prioritize you in our lives. For most of us, that looks like our money. Now, here's a scenario I want to give you. Imagine that tomorrow you go to your doctor and he or she runs an EKG test on you. They put you on the treadmill and they do the whole stress test. And afterwards, your doctor comes in and says, uh, wow, you know, bad news. Your heart is really, really not in good shape. In fact, if you were just to keep doing the same diet and lifestyle that you're doing right now, I would guess that you'll probably have a heart attack somewhere in the next year or two. And so your doctor says, here's three things you need to change. Here's three specific things you need to change today so that you don't have a heart attack in the next year or two. I can almost guarantee you of those three, the one that would matter the most would be the one you'd least want to do, right? Like stop eating cheese or start exercising. I can almost guarantee you the one that would matter the most is the one that would be the most painful. So here's the thing. I didn't make these up. These come from God. Which of these is the most painful for you? I know they're all painful for me. Okay, which is the most painful? And here's the thing. That's probably the one that matters the most. That's probably the one where there's started to become some complacency, either in your thought life or in your schedule or in your finances. Here's principle two. After we repent, that was step one, if we add on consistent obedience, it will bring God's freedom and blessing in our lives. And we see this every year here through our Financial Peace University. We'll have couples come in and families come in who are massively in debt. And as they commit to do their finances God's way, guess what? It leads to a place of freedom doesn't mean you're going to win the lottery and have a million dollar windfall every year, but it means you do it God's way. You can actually spend less than you make. You can actually save. You can also give generously. It will lead you to a place of freedom eventually. That's step two. And the same is true in your marriage. The same is true in every area of your life, including your relationship with God. Here's two examples of this in our text in Nehemiah 10, the first God's people say, we assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands. And here's what I want to ask you. Have you ever assumed responsibility for living life God's way in your life? No one else can do it for you. Your parents can't do it for you. Your spouse can't do it for you. Secondly, they say, we will not neglect the house of God. And I already gave you the other one where they said, we'll bring him the first fruits. But here's the question. Have you made this kind of agreement? Have you taken step two? So step one, repent. Step two, reorder your life to God's way. Step three comes after things get better because we've been doing it God's way. And that is I resolve that I'm going to remain humbly dependent on God now that I'm in a time where there's some blessing in some areas of my life. There's some comfort in some areas that used to only be pain. And I'm going to acknowledge that the tendency of my heart is now that things have gotten better, my heart tends toward complacency. I'm going to choose, I'm going to resolve to remain just as dependent on God. You know, when I worked as a journalist, I had this assignment to interview well-known people in Arizona. And I had this kind of life-changing 
realization when I interviewed two guys back to back. I'll tell you about them in a moment. But when I went into that story, I lived thinking, I'll probably live to be about 73 years old. And here's why I thought that. Because my grandpa, he passed away at 73 from a heart attack. So I just always thought my whole childhood, like, well, I'll probably live to be 73. Well, the first guy I got assigned to write a profile on was this cartoonist guy named Bill Keen. He wrote a cartoon, a newspaper cartoon called Family Circus. And when I interviewed Bill Keen, he was like 81 or 82. And I was so surprised because he was still living in his house and he was, you know, pretty independent. His wife had passed away, but he was so intelligent. He was so sharp. And I got to his house and he's like, hey, let's go for a walk. And we took his Labrador retriever for a walk. And I was like, I had no idea people could be so just like healthy and strong in their 80s. Well, the next month I got assigned to uh, write a story on this guy named Hugh Downs. And Hugh Downs was like in his mid-80s. He used to be on a TV show called 2020. And same thing, he's living in his own house, he's really intelligent, he's really sharp. And so I went back to both of these guys and I asked them both, you know, what have you done in your life? And separately, they both said more or less, we did what we love for a living, I did what I love for my job, and I ate healthy and I exercised every day. And I thought, you know what's so interesting is here they are almost in their 90s, And it's not that they started eating right and exercising after a crisis. It was back in their prime when they were young and they were healthy and strong and they didn't have to do all that stuff. They started that and somehow just the pattern continued. So after that, I I decided, you know what, God, I'm going to plan to live to 95. That's just going to be my plan now. Now, obviously, God, you're, you're in charge, you're in control, and I know heaven's going to be a lot better than this earth, so, you know, that's all in his hands. But I decided I'm going to start living like I expect to live to 95. I'm going to eat that way. I'm going to exercise that way. Now, what's the point? Why do I tell you that whole story? Because you can apply the same principle spiritually, and you can say, you know what? When times are good, when I'm not in a time of crisis— I'm still going to make the spiritually healthy choices, knowing that it will bear fruit in the long run. And one of the ways it bears fruit is for our kids and our grandkids, the people we love around us. If the people around us see we only really depend on God in the crisis, but then when life's great, we don't need God, what they'll take away from it is just keep your life great and you won't need God. It's the kids and grandkids who see, wow, Grandma or grandpa, things got better, things were good, and they kept being faithful. They kept prioritizing God. Those are the kids and grandkids who see that God matters in all seasons of life. So don't stop doing what you did to get here. When God gives you comfort or blessing or success, don't stop doing what you did to get there. When your marriage has improved, don't stop doing what you did to get there. When your health improves, don't stop doing what you did to get there. When your walk with God improves, don't stop doing what you did to get there. And that's principle three, that the natural bent of our hearts is to drift away from God. And I don't say that in a negative, shame on you way, but in a way of self-awareness. And really, more than anyone in this message, I'm preaching to myself and saying, hey, I now have health that I didn't used to have. Am I going to be just as urgently dependent on God as I was when I was laying in a hospital bed? Are you going to be just as dependent on God as you were when you thought you were going to get a divorce or you thought you were going to be bankrupt? And it's character, it's spiritual character that says, I'm going to choose God in the good times. 
just as much as I did in the hard times. You could sum it up this way. Choose to depend on God before the crisis. Choose to depend on him in the crisis. He's what's going to get you through it. And then keep choosing after the crisis to keep depending on him in the same way. Well, I wonder, what does this look like for you? You know, everything we've covered today, it's been a lot. What does it mean in your life? Of those three steps, repent, reorder your life habits, resolve to stay with it, which one is your step today? Where is it that the Holy Spirit, as we've covered all this material, has just reached into your heart and he said, that's it. That's where you've started to get a little complacent. God loves you too much to let you drift into complacency. I love you too much to let you drift into complacency. God wants the best for you. I want the best for you. Stay under the umbrella of his blessing. I want you to imagine your life. I want you to imagine it in a way that whether it's your marriage, your finances, your health, you do it God's way and there's a level of success. And then you say, I'm going to keep doing it God's way. And instead of drifting back down, there's another level. And there's another level. And from now until we get to heaven, he continues to make us more and more like him in every way. I want to pray that for you right now. Father, across this room, Lord, we just bring you ourselves. We bring you the awareness that, Lord, we're infinitely loved. There's nothing we can do to escape your love. There's no mistakes we can make to outrun your love. And yet, Lord, you also tell us about ourselves that left to ourselves, we drift into complacency. Left to ourselves, we become spiritually lazy. And Lord, we see it in thousands of years of Israel's history that after you bless your people, they just get a little lazy and they drift away and they get out from under your blessing and things fall apart. And today, you've brought us into your house to speak a word of caution to speak a word of love, to speak a word of direction that says where there's some comfort in your life, where things are easier than they used to be in your life, don't get complacent. And so God, today we choose these three steps, Lord, if there's anything we need to repent from, we repent from those things today, Lord. We claim that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us. God, if there's any area of our life where we've not reordered our life to live your way, our thoughts, our time, our treasure. We say, God, today we will reorder our life. Even when it's painful, that's what keeps us from getting complacent. God, our money is your money. Our bodies are your bodies. Our homes are your homes. Our families, our dreams, all that we have is from you. And we will give you our time. We'll give you our thoughts because that's what protects us from complacency. God, There's people in here in their marriages, their finances, their businesses, their physical health. Is it a place of freedom that it didn't used to be? And so, Lord, step three, we resolve. We're going to continue to choose you just as desperately as we did in the crisis now that we're in a time of blessing. Lord, would you just walk with each of my brothers and sisters? Give them the willpower today to say, I resist complacency and I choose dependence on God in every season of my life. We love you, Jesus, and we choose this through your power. It's in your name we pray.